Hi everyone, this is Sarah from The Journey and welcome to another Ask the Expert special. Now, I can certainly speak from my own experience when I say there's two topics that tend to come hand in hand as a new parent. One is anxiety and the other is breastfeeding. And today we are joined by a US board certified pediatrician and academic, Dr. Natasha Sriraman, and she is going to be talking about some of the major, major myths that are so common that can cause issues around both of these very, very important and emotive subjects. Now, I struggle with both, and I really wish I'd heard this podcast before my own journey began. Um, it's something that Dr. Sriraman has experienced herself, so is very passionate about. So I think there's something really interesting here and please share it with any new parents-to-be and we hope you find it useful. Hi, Dr. Natasha. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So perhaps the best thing to do is to start off telling us a little bit about you professionally, obviously how you got into pediatrics and why, and also a little bit about you personally as well, because you're a mother as well. Um, So yeah, just tell us a little bit about you. Yeah, sure. Um, My name is uh, Dr. Natasha Sriraman. I am a board certified pediatrician and uh, I am what we call an academic pediatrician. So what that means is I see patients. I'm the, I'm the doctor that you bring your children to from the time they're born all the way through, you know, 18 or even sometimes beyond. Um, but I also, the academic side is I also teach. I teach medical students. I train pediatric residents. I do research. I publish papers and, you know, and I get to uh, speak, you know, speak about various topics um, around the country. So it's a nice balance between um, really kind of helping to, you know, shape protocol and, and do research while I'm, while I get to not only see patients, which is my favorite part of the job, but I also get to train future physicians and future pediatricians, which is so important. Um, like you said, I'm a mother of three. My children are actually a little bit older. My oldest is 18. I have a 16 year old and a soon to be 13 year old. Um, we are, you know, kind of all adjusting to the, um, you know, the COVID crisis right now. But generally speaking, um, yes, I have three kids in, you know, they're all in school. Um, My husband is an ICU doctor. And um, as you can imagine, our house is a little bit busy. um, Just because I was gonna say, (laughs) how do you have any time? (laughs) (laughs) Just with both of our schedules. And really, my passion in pediatrics, um, obviously, I love pediatrics and I'm a little biased, but of course I have the best patients ever. Um, I'm not just taking care of the child. I'm really taking care of the, the parents and the family. And most of the time, you know, most of the time the, the mother is the one who brings the child to the appointment, like many of us. And um, because of my own struggles with what I call like the fourth trimester, I like to call that period, that initial postpartum period, the fourth trimester. And, um, you know, definitely in, in our country, in the United States, postpartum care for the mother is pretty abysmal in terms of, you know, how much attention and care the mother gets during pregnancy. And then once the baby is born, you know, there's really, it's like mom is usually forgotten about. And I feel with my own struggles <clears throat> with my own children and my own postpartum, you know, journeys, as everyone knows, every child is different, every pregnancy is different. Um, but like with my 18-year-old, for, for example, she, you know, I never got her to latch. She was, she never latched on. So I was attached to a pump, you know, while during my training for, you know, nine and a half months. And wow. that, was, that was pretty miserable. <laughs> that is <laughs> and, intense. <laughs> and then, You're a trooper. <laughs> 
And then, you know, with my second child, I, you know, I was sleep deprived and, you know, looking back on it, I think when you're in it, you don't really realize, um, you know, back then there there wasn't (laughs) a lot of support, you know, there was no internet. And, and I think, you know, there's also the assumption that, you know, hey, this is just part of motherhood, you know, you're just going to get through it, and it's going to be okay. And I think, as women, we also put so much pressure on ourselves to do everything and do everything correctly. And we have to do everything that everyone else is doing. And we really always forget about taking care of ourselves. So I think in retrospect, when I started doing a lot of the um, work that I do with maternal mental health, I realized, wait, that was postpartum that I had with my son, but it wasn't really ever recognized. And when I did try to get help, um, I really had kind of, you know, um, really kind of like the door shut on me. Like, it's already hard enough for us as mothers to ask for help. And then when you don't, you know, when you put yourself out there in a vulnerable position, and you don't get the help you need, it's, it's really jarring. Um, and I, you know, I still remember it 16 years later, um, calling, calling my physician and really getting no help at all. And then, um, so really, it's just, you know, I, I really pride myself, you know, on, yes, you know, I have the education and, you know, the knowledge and I've, you know, I've learned all these things, you know, over 14 years of training in school and everything like that. But I also tailor my advice um, to moms and to what they're going through. And I make it realistic because I myself have been through it. And I think that's why, you know, I started this journey on social media and like through my website and writing you know, non-scientific publications is because, you know, in my practice, I can only reach, you know, a certain number of mothers every day, whereas through social media or like podcasts like this, you can reach hundreds, if not thousands of women and moms. And, and it's really just heartening to see, or if I get a message, um, you know, from, or a DM from someone and just say, you know, tell me like how much, you know, that podcast helped them or how much that post helped them. And, and it's really uh, gratifying to see. And I, and I, and I definitely think there's definitely more support now because of podcasts like this and social media. But, you know, motherhood can be really, at times, really isolating. And, um, and it's really can, you know, almost disempower women. And, and, you know, my goal is to empower, you know, empower motherhood. Well, I think it's phenomenal what you're doing. And yes, I agree with you. I think it's better than it was. But I think it's still so, so far off where it should be. And, you talk completely rightly about the pressure that we put ourselves under as mothers. And I think while social media and the internet helps in so many ways, also, you know, if we're not very careful with it, can make us feel a lot worse because we all have that tendency to scroll through and see these kind of perfect lives of everyone else and then just think you're completely failing. I think that every kind of new mother has gone through that and and it can be really really tough and as you say it's it's very isolating and especially when you're a new mum it's you know absolutely life-changing and the emotions and the hormones you're going through and I think whilst maybe there has been some changes around the edges about how you know the support it's still so far off and actually a pediatrician and with your approach I mean, certainly in the UK as well, and and also where I spend half my time in Israel, it's it's very lacking. I think the approach is is typically well, as you say, you kind of get on with it as part of motherhood. You kind of lean on your family, but our modern lifestyles, our expectations are just so massive. 
Um, and I think it's very difficult um, when you are feeling vulnerable to speak up. And also, I think it's very difficult to know what's normal and what's not. So as you yourself said, you know, you look back on what happened with your son and you kind of realize now that you had postpartum. So if, you know, a new mother is listening to this and she's really struggling, based on your experience, what would be some of the warning signs um, that maybe she should kind of speak up and ask for more help? What are some of the things that might indicate to you if, you know, a patient came, uh, a patient and their mother came into your office? What were some of the things that you might say, you know what, this person needs some more support? Yeah, I think, um, you know, obviously those first couple of weeks with, with the hormonal changes, you know, whether you're breastfeeding or not, you know, obviously there's going to be some mood lability, you know, emotional, like you said, you know, you just, you just gave birth and, you know, there's a lot of emotions that go through that, but I really like to point out like the function piece. And I know in the literature it says, you know, the first two weeks are baby blue. So that's what the normal, and then all of a sudden magically after uh, day 15 is going to be postpartum depression. And what I've seen in my research, it really doesn't obviously work like that. The human body doesn't work like that, but it's really thinking about the function, like, um, you know, are these feelings over of feeling overwhelmed or sadness? Is it just really preventing you from, you know, doing what you have to do? Like whether that's, you know, caring for the baby or caring for yourself, you know, frequently like, you know, moms, you know, are, are you know, they're not eating properly and things like that. And I think um, while postpartum depression has, you know, gotten a lot of, um, you know, so much more, you know, awareness, um, you know, like the PPD and things like that. I think a lot of times we we forget about the PPA, the anxiety. And actually, that's more of what we frequently see. And, you know, it's the, it's that excessive worry about the safety of your child. And sometimes, you know, women can have such overwhelming thoughts that, you know, that they are unrest. Um, I work with a perinatal psychiatrist here and her one caveat was always like, you know, when the baby rests or when the baby's sleeping, you know, whether it's between feeds and things like that, are you able to rest? Are you able to just, you know, you may not be able to sleep. I know every woman is different, but are you able to rest and just like quiet your mind? And a lot of times when we see these women, it's like they have what we call, you know, there's a lot of noise going on and they can't quiet it down. So um, these are the mothers um, you know, of course, sometimes I have the moms who just look very despondent in my office or, you know, they may get tearful if I start asking them questions, um, which is what I'm there for. But a lot of times we see the mom who this is the mom who may be bringing the baby every week to my office because of mm-hmm. know, a diaper rash or the baby has a cold or something like that. Um, this is the mom who may be running to the emergency room with the child because she's always worried that something is wrong. Um, just a few months ago before all of this started, I had a mom and, you know, she was, you know, just one time it was a diaper rash. One time the baby was congested and, and I walked in and, you know, of course you check the baby and the baby's fine. And I just kind of made a joke. And I said, I said, mom, you must really miss me. And she goes, yeah, I just, I'm just really worried. And, and, you know, something's not right. And then I just kind of, you know, and luckily I think that's the beauty of pediatrics. We see, we see the mother and the baby so much. And so when I do these talks, whether it's in my own academic institution or even around the country, when I show, I have a graphic where I show how many times I see a baby in the first year of life. And, you know, 90, what, 90, 95% of the time, generally it's the mother bringing the child for the pediatric visit. 
you know, it's seven to nine times in that first year. And I see the baby two in the United States, we see the baby two to three days after they leave the nursery. So if you think about it, I'm seeing mom and baby within three days of three to five days after delivery. Whereas um, in our country, post the first time mom is seen is six weeks after delivery. That's, that's a huge gap. So if mom is suffering mentally or, you know, that's, that's a long time for her to wait. <laughs> and, Absolutely. And then you throw in all these sick visits, you know, like if the baby has a cold or the baby has thrush or the baby has diaper rash. So that was this case with this mom. And then finally I just said, hey, mom, you know, I just turned into a conversation. And I said, you know, this is what I'm concerned about. You know, anything you want to tell me or any concerns. And basically she told me that she had struggled with anxiety as like a teenager. And, you know, she I don't remember if she had taken medications. And, and I think that disconnect is there is like how maybe what we deal with as maybe a teenager or as even a young adult. And then all of a sudden you know, we become a mother and there's that gap. And we, we see this kind of trajectory of where if you have a previous history of depression, anxiety, you know, it may worsen with pregnancy and in the postpartum period. Yeah, I think absolutely. This is a really good point because as you say, we kind of, the whole phrase postpartum depression, which is obviously, you know, a very clinical diagnosis and, and much on the more extreme end. But actually, as you say, the postpartum anxiety part can be very debilitating and actually is definitely not talked about so much. And I think, you know, anxiety within our society is so much more prevalent, whether it is better diagnosis or more awareness or it is just the way of our lives. Um, I think you're absolutely spot on that this is something that people can, you know, really suffer with. And whether that is, as you say, visiting the doctor a lot more or even if it's, you know, really worrying about doing everything perfectly. I think this, you know, this massive life change and feeling out of control can be a massive trigger for people. I know I really suffered with it as well in the first few weeks um, of, of having my son. And also I had suffered with anxiety as a teenager. So I think this is something that is really much more common than we think. Um, now, the question is, if we do, you know, once, so you, you could clearly see that this was the case in this particular mother, how on earth do you um, go about tackling this and making this a more manageable situation for the mother. Right. So, so what we've done is, um, you know, based on our professional organization, the uh, pediatric organization, you know, they were, they were actually very cutting edge about how pediatricians should be talking about postpartum depression. So when I started doing this about seven or eight years ago, I, there was a lot of pushback because, who is my patient? The patient is the baby. I'm not the, I'm not the mom's doctor. And, you know, that's the OB for the OB to handle and things like that. So what we do is we start screening. So we do start screening um, as early. We start actually start early as two weeks, and then we go through six months. Um, I helped write the protocol for our practice and then for all the practices within our region of where I live. And then we also started screening in, in our neonatal ICU, in the NICU, because we have you know, those mothers have a whole other set of, you know, triggers and, and risk factors. And really, um, you know, the, the, the screening tool is, that, is just that. It's a screening tool. It's not, you know, a magical number that if you're above this number, you know, you're depressed. And if you're below it, you're fine. It's really opening up the conversation. And what we've seen in all of our practice in this, you know, in, in, in the state is that 
mothers really actually welcome talking about it because it's it's opened up that discussion. And like I said, is that <clears throat> you are screened the the OB, OBGYN recommendation recommendations are screening one time during pregnancy. So you might have been screened in your second trimester, and the next time you will be screened is at that six week visit. What I was finding is that a lot of my mothers never went back for their six week checkup whether it was insurance access, whether it was transportation issues, whether it was not finding childcare or other societal or familial issues. So even if you're getting screened at six weeks at your OB, uh, many, many moms weren't going back. Um, and also like just the frequency of seeing the pediatrician, I'm building that relationship with the mom. So of course, you know. Yeah, I, it makes so much more sense, yeah, I have to of, say. And of course, as you said, you know, maybe I'm, you know, a little more attuned to it, you know, like this is my passion where, you know, it may not be my partner's passion, but at least my partner, you know, has a screening tool that I've trained other physicians about. And, and the beauty is I get to train medical students and residents about it. So, you know, even if these medical students aren't going to become pediatricians, you know, everyone, every physician is going to come in contact with a mother, unless you're a pathologist, everyone is going to come in contact with a mother. And that's when I talk about how just recognizing that you know, you know, whether you go into internal medicine or family medicine or, or become a GP, like you, I've hopefully trained that, that person to maybe kind of remember like, wait, what did Dr. Sri Raman teach me, you know, many years ago, you know, just to kind of have that, you know, kind of have that trigger in your mind. Um, and that's what's happened. It's like a lot of these, you know, physicians move to other parts of the country after they graduate. And I get emails and say, you know, I'm so glad you gave me that lecture because I saw a mom you know, and something didn't seem right. And I, you know, I did what you taught me to do. Um, so it's really just, we have that. And I think that's the best part about pediatrics. I'm taking care of mom and baby and really talking to mom about how just because the baby's outside of your body doesn't mean that connection still isn't there. And I think that's, that's it, you know, you said it perfectly. I think that's what we lose once we have the baby is that all this focus is on the baby, which of course, the baby needs, needs attention, but you know, nine times out of 10, most of my initial newborn visits in those like first two weeks or even one month, you know, the baby is fine. So I'm spending like five, 10 minutes on the baby. Most of the time I'm spending time with a mom, whether I'm talking about, you know, breastfeeding issues, whether I'm talking about, you know, a lot of times they're asking me about their pelvic pain and their surgical pain. And, you know, I just try to tell them, well, you know, this is, you know, a lot of times, they feel very, um, you know, helpless. Like they don't know what to do. And I'm like, well, this is why you need to call your OB and things like that. And then a lot of times, you know, this is when the, when the conversation starts happening about how they're feeling, whether they're feeling sad or overwhelmed or they don't feel like they have support or they're always worrying about their baby. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing because that just asking those questions really normalizes it. I, you know, it's not like I'm just asking patient A and not patient B and there's something wrong with patient A. You know, having the screening tool is just that. It's just a tool to get the conversation started. And Yeah, and, so it opens the conversation, yeah. which people otherwise probably wouldn't be happening because I think, you know, as you say, when the baby's born, everyone who comes to visit, the first thing is looking at the baby and, oh, the baby, the baby, the baby. And, and most people kind of don't uh, understandably, you know, pick up on some of the more subtle things. Now, once you've opened that conversation and, and you identify that somebody really needs help, would it be 
would your next step be to recommend they go and see um, a psychologist or is it are there other things you can do in the interim like is it asking for more support or is it encouraging them to ask for more support how do you because you know anxiety is notoriously difficult to deal with what are the some of the kind of practical things that you would kind of advise a new mum who's really struggling with anxiety to do in order to kind of quieten this and to go into a much more kind of healthy path right yeah well I've, so before you start you know, I, what I when I talk to other physicians about this, you know, you really kind of want to have the system in place before you start screening, because it's you know it's like screening for cholesterol. If someone has a high cholesterol, I need to do something about it, right? So just to yeah. have that system in place. So really, it's just it's really individualized. Um, a lot, of, like I mentioned, a lot of my moms may have a, have a history of anxiety, depression. You know, oftentimes, unfortunately, mothers are have taken themselves off the medication during pregnancy or were told by their physician to take, to stop the medication, um, during pregnancy. So, you know, depression or anxiety during pregnancy is the biggest risk factor for developing postpartum symptoms. So definitely, I think the first thing I always talk about is sleep because as every mom knows who's listening right now, sleep can definitely affect mood. Um, so really talking to them about how we can maximize sleep um, and that recommendation is going to change, you know, because a breastfeeding mom is going to be up, you know, more maybe than a mom who's giving formula. So how that looks. Um, I am also a lactation consultant. So really kind of that connection between postpartum mood disorders and breastfeeding, you know, is really is a very strong connection. So that's been very helpful in my career because knowing the kind of physiology of breastfeeding. So how to maximize sleep. Um, and I'm the philosophy some breast for breastfeeding, some is better than none. So if that means if, you know, dad or grandma or your night nurse or whoever has to give that bottle, whether it's pumped breast milk or formula, so you can sleep. So you get that kind of four or five hour stretch of sleep. Um, we have, we've set up free support groups in our hospital through, um, you know, through our chapter of postpartum support international, but a lot of our nurses have been trained. And so we have support groups. So, um, you know, and right now they're actually all virtual. So, you know, maybe that's some, just having that peer support. Sometimes that's enough for moms. Um, we do have a list of perinatal, you know, therapists and psychologists who are well-versed in this area because not every psychologist or psychiatrist is well-versed in perinatal mental health. And I think sometimes that can worsen the situation. So we have like a vetted list of that. Um, for the moms who have definitely had a history of anxiety, depression, or maybe took themselves off the medication, you know, in the way our healthcare system is set up, you're not going to be able to just, you know, call your psychiatrist and get back in within the next week. It could be like a four to six week wait. So those are the, those are the moms we, we say, you know, call your OB because I have to explain that, you know, I'm not their physician. I can't write their prescription, you know, for their SSRI or whatever medication they're mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. So really kind of empowering mom and encouraging mom, like, mom, you need, I said, you need to leave this office and call your OB. Or sometimes we'll call from my office. <laughs> I'm like, pick up the phone, yeah. pick up the phone and call, you know, and then they'll get an appointment because then the OB can restart that medication. And then, um, and then obviously, you know, and then we have um, various perinatal psychiatrists who will then probably take over the med management um, while, you know, mom is doing therapy and things like that. So it's really, there's all these layers. And I think just finding out what works for 
the mother in terms of insurance and access and, and also addressing the stigma um, because for various families, for various mothers in various cultures, there's a huge stigma. So, you know, maybe not seeing a psychiatrist is really, or a therapist is really going to be acceptable to them or their family. Um, so maybe we start with like, you know, like the peer support group or, you know, maximizing sleep, things like that. So, you know, just, um, I'm of Indian descent, so I speak my parents' language, but I also speak Spanish, so I'm trilingual. So, you know, in, in a lot of the cultures and a lot of the mothers I see, a lot of the immigrant mothers, you know, mental health is still very stigmatized. And then you put in maternal mental health, and that's completely, you know, not accepted in some cultures. So really kind of finding finding where they're at and meeting them there and what's going to be helpful to them because there's no use of me making all these recommendations and they don't agree with it. It's kind of meeting, absolutely meeting, meeting mom where she's at. So, you know, it's very different with like, you know, a lot of my Indian or Pakistani mothers, it's very different with my, you know, uh, my Hispanic mothers. It's very different, you know, my African American mothers and, and my, you know, white mothers. So, um, you know, it's just kind of figuring out where they're at and what's acceptable to them and what they, what they would feel comfortable doing. Yeah. And I think, as you say, the first step to that is opening the conversation, which is uh, still something. And as, as you rightly point out, in some cultures, you know, just off the table. So it's great that there, you know, there is an outlet there. Now, you also mentioned, um, you know, this kind of notion of, you know, the first two weeks are it's acceptable to feel overwhelmed and then boom, you know, day 15, it's it's not. Can you um, because of obviously all the hormonal shifts. Now, can you actually just tell us from a kind of physician's perspective, what are the hormonal shifts that happen that can make us feel really blue? And I know it's not so binary that it would be kind of day 14, day 15 that, you know, you start to feel better. But at what point do these hormonal shifts start to kind of really even out? And then after kind of two or three weeks, then you, you kind of know. So can you give us a little bit of color around that? Yeah. So once, you know, like, you know, you have all these hormones like, you know, estrogen, progesterone, cortisol, insulin, you know, thyroid hormone, everything's working, you know, to, you know, as you go through your pregnancy and things like that. And then the biggest shift is once the baby is born, the placenta is removed, there's a hormone called progesterone that completely drops and that's normal. Um, and that actually is what promotes, um, that's actually what makes a mom, one of the reasons mom starts lactating. So, you know, and then, and if mom is breastfeeding, those hormonal shifts are going to be different than a mom who's not breastfeeding because every mom, you know, ex except the 1%, you know, there's a very small percentage that can't lactate. Every mom, whether they decide to breastfeed or not will lactate. Um, so all those hormones, of, you know, cortisol and oxytocin and things like that all affect it. And then, you know, establishing breastfeeding, you know, also shifts those hormones and, you know, whether the baby is going to breastfeed and if, and if that milk is removed from mom's breast, that's going to, you know, shift hormones and things like that. So there's really nothing that drastically changes at that 14 days. I think a lot of this was based on research many, many years ago. But, you know, I think the, the concept is that around that you know, 13, 14, 15 day mark around that two week mark, there may be some leveling off. Maybe some of these hormones that have drastically shifted will kind of normalize. But, you know, it's kind of what 
you know, you mentioned it's not this magic number. And I remember when I started doing this, everyone's like, okay, baby blues for the first 10 to 14 days. And then after that, it's considered depression. And, you know, what I've seen just amongst um, my patients and, um, you know, and a lot of the research I've done is that we're actually seeing that, yes, it may be categorized as baby blues based on the timeline, but that doesn't mean that's not a precursor to depression or anxiety. And, and my thought process on that is that, you know, why should I wait to um, screen a mom at one month, which is some of the current recommendations when I could pick it up, you know, two weeks before, because I, I, I don't think what people realize, and I think, especially, you know, in the medical field, and, you know, I, and I see this even with a lot of my pediatric residents, and I think it, it's definitely different when my pediatric residents are having their own babies. You know, it's very interesting. I remember I was teaching a male resident, and I can't remember, you know, his, his wife was pregnant and things like that, and, you know, he, we missed the screening. And um, he goes, well, that's okay. She's coming back in two or three weeks. And, I'm look- and I looked at him, and I said, I said, you know, this is really important not to miss because if that mom is depressed or anxious, I said, two to three weeks feels like a lifetime without any help. Yeah, and I think, definitely. <laughs> and I think that's what we miss in the medical field because we're so focused on, you know, the scientific side or the evidence side. And as, and as we should be, I'm not saying that it's not important to, you know, assess the baby's, you know, health. And, but past that point, you know, most babies are, do, you know, doing well. I mean, we may spend more time with the babies who are in the neonatal ICU or having feeding difficulty. But really, you know, to not catch that mom just because it's, it's only baby blues, we're really finding that's not true. And a lot of times, because we find these moms earlier, that's when the conversation changes. And we're like, well, yeah, I struggled with this, you know, with my first pregnancy. Or, oh, yeah, I struggled with, you know, anxiety when I was 18. You know, things like that. And it's really, it's almost, it's almost like a continuation. If you look at it, it's like this, it's this huge bell curve, this continuum that maybe started when they were 16 or 18 years old. Or maybe it started with their first pregnancy. And it's not just because, you know, you, you were pregnant and nothing happened. And then two weeks later, you know, you're fine. And then day 15, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the bell goes off and you're depressed or anxious. So, I've, you know, it's we've kind of ch- changed our practice a little bit based on what we found. So, yes, the evidence and the recommendations are such, but, you know, we have definitely tweaked them. Um, and I've, you know, tweaked things based on what I think, you know, the moms need. Yeah, and it makes a lot of sense. And one of the things we were talking about before this, we went on this podcast is how, you know, as, as when we're preparing to have a child, we think, all of us think a lot about the birth plan, which is somewhat ironic because uh, most births don't entirely go to plan. No. So it's kind of a waste of time, but we like to do it anyway. And most people spend a lot of time thinking about that. But we don't, for the most part, think about, you know, this fourth trimester that you said, that you mentioned and the plan for that. And, and given what you've said about the kind of associated risk, if you have suffered with anxiety and depression um, before or even during your pregnancy, the exact thing you should be focusing on actually is your is your postnatal, um, you know, health and, and care and plan. Um, but we don't do that. So, and I know that's something you're pretty passionate about doing. Um, so can you talk to us about, you know, the approach... Um, 
you go for when it comes to postnatal um, and, and planning for that during pregnancy? Yeah, I mean, and it's so funny that we were talking about it before the, the recording. It's just, you know, my big passion is the postpartum plan. Um, and like you said, um, I, I personally am not a huge fan of birth plans, so it's not to minimize, you know, I, I know that's very important to some women, but as, as, a, as, a, as a physician mom who had three C-sections and none of them were planned, <laughs> you know, baby, babies will do what they want to do. So, and I, you know, and I, I understand why some women, the birth plan is very important, but you know, when, when you're in the delivery room or in the OR, you know, and, and, you know, I, you know, I used to work at OB, like when I was a medical student and things like that, babies have a mind of their own. And I think this is something we all learn as, you know, as mothers and during pregnancy that we think it's going to go one way and we're going to do X, Y, and Z, and the baby's going to get sleep trained at X, Y, and Z, and the baby's going to, that's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. (laughs) And and I learned that, I learned that very early on 18 years ago. Um, But it's, you know, it's, and it's really, you know, and as the physician side and as a nurse side, you know, a lot of moms kind of frown upon like, well, they, you know, they do too much in the hospital, they do this. We're, you know, we're really focused on the safety of the mom and baby. So I think what happens is when the birth plan doesn't go as it's supposed to go, you know, you, you have to understand on the physician side, you know, mom is healthy, baby's healthy, you know, we're all happy. The obstetrician's happy, the pediatrician's happy, the nurses are happy and everything's great. And the baby and mom went home and there's no issues because a lot of things, you know, could go wrong. But I think what we don't realize is that mothers may see that as, like you said, as a failure because they had a plan and it didn't go as planned. Um, they may perceive it as a traumatic birth, even though on the physician side, we don't see it as traumatic because, you know, thankfully everything went well. So I think that perception, we don't always, uh, we actually probably rarely talk about, if at all. And ha- not having um, planned for that, I think, is, is huge because you can't plan for the birth per se. I mean, you can talk about a birth plan. And I think what, at least what I realized, um, and I was just talking to a friend about this. It's so funny because, you know, I was put on bed rest with my oldest, who's 18. So I thought I would have all this time. And, you know, back then we didn't have, you know, uh, you know phones and all that stuff. So, you know, I was like scrapbooking and, you know, reading books and, you know, you know, cutting, cutting things out and, and planning things. And I was like, I'm going to have all this time after she's born because I'm going to have maternity leave for a couple months. And, oh my gosh, it's completely the opposite. Like when you come home, yeah. you're sleep deprived, <laughs> you know, your, your body hurts, you know, your, your breasts are engorged, um, you know, and then I think we often forget about the role of the father and the partner, you know, like my, my husband was very hands-on, but you know, they're figuring out their new role as a father. How does that change the relationship between, you know, the, you know, husband and wife or the two partners? And I think we have this envision that we're going to have all this time (laughs) when we come home and it's exactly the opposite. And the whole concept of the postpartum plan and planning for that fourth trimester, like feeling prepared is that, yes, you may not be able to control everything, but it's also when you need that help and that support, you're not scrambling at that time, like, you know, as an urgent, you know, as an, as in an emergent situation. So, um, you know, I, 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 uh, I was, like I was telling you before, I have something, what we call a postpartum plan that I have, you know, there's all these great resources that have, you know, put pieces together. So we've kind of brought them together 
And um, I, I uh, talk about that on my social media. My goal is to have like a free downloadable, like a postpartum plan, but you know, everything from like the names of lactation consultants in your area, um, which friends are you going to call when you need to take a shower at four, four in the afternoon, which friend or who do you call when you just need to rest, you know, and no one is there, um, you know, who can deliver groceries, you know, who are you going to call for this? And it's just really kind of a systematic way that, um, you know, it's just like literally just you and your, you know, your partner just sit down and, you know, while you're pregnant and just really fill it out. And then it's on the fridge. And then, you know, if you are struggling, like, you know, what's the name of the psychologist? What's the phone number of how do I reach the support group? You know, who's the lactation consultant I can call as opposed to, I know for myself, like I was scrambling, like I was, you know, we didn't have, we didn't have internet back then, but you know, you're really kind of, you know, calling around and like, Oh, who can help me with my breastfeeding? Oh, you know, who do I like, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. And then they're booked up and then like, it's, you feel even worse (laughs) and it just gets into this vortex. I know exactly what you mean. So I guess it's just about, you know, preparing yourself and getting organized. And, and actually it's funny because, um, you know, you mentioned the role of your partner or husband in this. Um, and, you know, one of, uh, I had a podcast guest on and, um, she had actually done, um, counseling with her husband in advance of the baby's arrival and and the counselor had said that um you know an arrival of a new baby is is a quote-unquote catastrophic event (laughs) for a relationship and not necessarily in a bad way but as in it will dramatically dramatically shift and she said it was extremely helpful so I suppose it's you know, as you say, just being as prepared as possible for all the eventualities and and challenges and the fact that, you know, babies do have minds of their own and we don't quite know what they're going to do. So the best thing you can do is is be prepared for lots of different eventualities. Um, You also mentioned a number of times, um, and it's a topic I'm really passionate about because it's something I really, really struggle with and I think really contributed to my anxiety, which is the challenge of breastfeeding. Because I think, you know, Um, everyone has their own different opinions on breastfeeding, whether they want to do it or whether they don't. But I think one of the kind of greatest frustrations is for a mother who really desperately wants to breastfeed and finds it very hard. Um, And I think there are, that's much more common than people think. And then the associated guilt that you get. And so can you talk to us um, a little bit about how you approach it and how you think about it and how you go about supporting mothers and also maybe some of the common issues that you come up against and, you know, some things that we can do about them? Yeah, so I think, unfortunately, um, you know, our obstetricians are really busy, but, you know, over 50 to 60% of moms will decide how they want to feed actually during pregnancy. But, you know, it's really not, you know, talked about antenatally here because, you know, it's, you know, we're focusing on mom and baby's health, like the fetus health and things like that. So a lot of, unfortunately, the first time maybe a mom will hear about it is, you know, in, on the postpartum floor, like on the, on the ward. And, you know, maybe it's different because, you know, you have a grandmother or, or an auntie at home that is going to be very supportive. But, you know, a lot of times every family's different. Like my mother didn't breastfeed me and my brother. And um, back then in pediatrics, we didn't learn about breastfeeding. So the, literally the first time I learned about breastfeeding was when I had, you know, my child and um, I struggled. And, and I think it's, you know, it's really unfortunate because there's no standard, standard of care. So depending on, I can tell you right now for all three of my children, 
the pediatrician said different things and all the nurses on the floor and all the lactation consultants all gave me different advice for all three kids. And, and it was very interesting because you, you know, I think because I knew so much about it because as a pediatrician and I really was passionate about breastfeeding my children, you know, predominantly breast milk, you know, I, I searched out the information and, you know, very commonly, um, a lot of times it starts in the nursery, unfortunately, like, you know, the mom struggles and, you know, no one is there to help her. There may or may not be a lactation consultant, um, you know, so then the, the baby may be given a bottle of formula and there's nothing wrong with that per se. But, you know, if that goes against mom's wishes or if mom, you know, only wants to breastfeed or only wants to breastfeed for the first, you know, six weeks of the baby's life, we've already disempowered mom right there by making the assumption that, you know, oh, well, it's not a big deal. It's, it's just formula. Um, so really kind of talking to mom, I don't think anyone asks mom what her goals are, because I think a lot of times we as mothers don't know. We're just trying to like, you know, we know, okay, we have to put the baby on the breast because colostrum is very important. And I think, again, that lack of knowledge, um, that assumption, what, what frequently is probably the most common thing I see um, in those first, in that first week of life is that, the concept of colostrum versus when the quote, you know, milk comes in, you know, around day four or five. And this concept that I'm not making enough milk, so the baby's not getting enough. And here, let me give, uh, let me give a bottle of formula where exactly the physiology is completely, that's completely opposite. So now that's really, really, really interesting, because mm -hmm. I think you are spot on, I think. And in fact, my own experience was that, mm -hmm. you know, I actually also had a C-section. And so, of course, you know, you're producing the colostrum, but then it can, you know, take your body a little bit longer for, quote unquote, the milk to come in. And I was panicking that, you know, I'm like, how is this baby going to survive <laughs> when there's like not really much coming out? So can you um, elaborate a little bit? Because I think, in fact, when I look at the traffic on our site, one of the, the subjects that gets a lot of traffic is I'm not producing enough milk. What's well, some of the science backed ways? And I think that that is a really, really important point. And I think. You know, I certainly didn't have knowledge of that. So can you explain to us a little bit about why that's kind of an incorrect concept yeah, sure. in the early yeah, days? Sure. So like, as you said, colostrum is, you know, rich in immunoglobulins. So what we sometimes we'll call it the baby's first immunization. So the goal is, you know, within that first hour, that golden hour, of course, it's going to be different. You know, if you had a C-section or if there's any complication, but the goal is to get the baby on the breast because once the baby starts suckling, you know, it it promotes you starting to secrete your uh, colostrum and breast milk and the colostrum, what it's, it's a different color and it's a lot less volume, but it's actually very thick. I don't know if, you know, maybe there's some moms listening that have actually, you know, sometimes we pump it out or hand express it so you can actually kind of see it. Um, the baby actually doesn't need that much volume. And I think that's the issue that we see, especially um, here in the United States is this concept of like, well, the bottle, I can see how much the baby is getting. And like you said, it's very, exactly. it's very frustrating. You know, um, it's like you said, it's very frustrating because we want to know, make sure, of course, that the baby's getting enough. But actually, the colostrum is enough. The, ba the baby doesn't need that much. You know, we kind of correlate it to like the size of the baby's fist. That's how baby, that's how big the baby's stomach is. So when you put it in that context in the visual, and there's a lot of great, um, visuals like online but I what I talk about is like the baby's the size of the baby's fist the baby doesn't need that much volume we want the baby to get the colostrum because again it has all those protective factors but the the volume isn't there and I think that's what 
you know, we don't learn about when we're pregnant. That's probably definitely what, you know, unless, unless you yeah. take a breastfeeding class. I honestly don't remember learning about it. Me um, neither. <laughs> you know, you get very, you get very stressed out. And, you know, for a lot of us, you know, my, my, my oldest, my daughter was very small. Like she came a little bit early and then she's really small because, you know, you lose weight, you know, the baby loses weight, um, which is normal within 10 to 14 days. But we also have to think about breastfed babies gain weight at a different rate than formula fed babies. And I think, again, this is um, the negative of us as physicians. And a lot of times pediatricians not learning about breastfeeding is because when you bring your baby in and, you know, we're looking at the growth and then your physician may be like, oh, my God, they're not growing fast enough or they're not gaining enough weight. And this is what exactly happened to me, you know, like. And me. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what do they automatically do? They say, here here's some formula and 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 I again you're minimizing moms what we want as mothers and you know if you if you want to give formula if you want to do mixed feeding that's you know that's completely fine but I know for me like my goal was to you know get to a certain point and exclusively breastfeed because I knew the changes in the baby's gut I knew the changes in the microbiome that if the if my baby got a little bit of formula and I th- you know, a lot of times why pediatricians do that is because, A, we have no idea how to fix a latch. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, uh, we don't know anything about breastfeeding because we weren't trained on that. And, you know, the third point is that, you know, especially the way the healthcare system is set up in some countries, you know, we have like 15, 20-minute appointment slots, which is completely ridiculous. Um, so it's, you know, so instead of trying to figure out what's wrong, well, here, just give the baby some formula and I'll see you back next week. And, you know, that, like you said, it's, it adds to already our feelings of we're not good enough. Uh, we're doing things wrong. It didn't work out the way it was. And I think, again, we don't, we're not preparing for those things. And we feel, again, like a failure or like the mom guilt. And what happens is physiologically, which is very interesting because I talk about this every day in my practice and I'll talk about it on my social media is that um, the look of like that aha moment that moms have when I tell them. And what happens is if you replace or you give formula, that means you're not, the, the baby's not suckling at the breast or you're not, or if you use a pump to remove milk, which was what was in my case, is that if you decrease the frequency of that, your milk production will go down. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's a supply and demand. And I, and I explained this, like, you know, I said, you know, so when the baby suckles or, you know, or the pump that signals to your brain, oh, she's using milk, let me make some more. And I, and I kind of visual, you know, I, I put this visualization in my patients, you know, I explain it to them that way. They're like, their eyes just light up because they don't realize what happens is that if they're replacing a feed or skipping a feed, it actually is going to shut down their milk production. And these are the moms I have in my office or I'll get, you know, DMs from that, you know, after a month, you know, I had no milk or I didn't have enough milk. And, you know, really asking moms what their breastfeeding goals are. I mean, we may not know 100%, but, you know, most moms will be able to tell you like, well, you know, I really want to just breastfeed until I go back to work. And so then you work, you work with them at that point. Um, I think, you know, there are moms who are like, well, no, there's no difference. I'm just going to give formula. And there's nothing wrong with the formula. But you know, just like I educate moms about the importance of car seats, the importance of not smoking around the baby or dad not smoking around the baby, you know, I, I, I think every mom should get education about why the colostrum, why the breast milk is so important. And it's not just 
<clears throat> healthier for the baby, but all the benefits for mom. And I think we're robbing a lot of mothers by not talking about that and just assuming, you know, one is equivalent to the other without really supporting mom and, and, and her breastfeeding goals. Do you know what? That's a really, really interesting point because, and it goes back to everything we've been discussing that, you know, in, in the fourth trimester, it is all about the baby. Um, and actually we write extensively about all the kind of benefits from an immunological perspective, from breastfeeding, from the microbiome, from all of that kind of stuff. But it was interesting. You said the benefits of breastfeeding for the mother, which is something that most people don't think about. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the benefits that you know, as long as we don't have crushing anxiety about doing wrong, right? You know, right. some of the benefits um, that that you would get as a mother, right? And and definitely what you just said is so important that if if the breastfeeding and the lack of sleep and that constant worry about breastfeeding, if that's worsening mom's anxiety or depression, yes, we will talk. I will talk to mom and be like, okay, let's you know put it in the context of your your mental health and everything. So I I definitely want to highlight that that it's not. You must do this at all costs. Absolutely not. Um, but yeah, I think I think most people are very well aware of the benefits to the baby. You know, the decreased risk of asthma and ear infections, and you know, certain gas, gastrointestinal illnesses. But um, I really like to talk about the benefits to mom because, again, I don't think the mom is aware. And then a lot of times, depending on who's in the room with her, you know, if it's the spouse or the partner, or the grandmother, really that teaching them about it may be able to put them in a better position to support mom. And I think there's this fallacy that, you know, breastfeeding, oh, I can't do anything because all she does is breastfeed. I can't even feed the baby. Yes, you can actually support your your breastfeeding mothers, whether you're a spouse or a partner or grandma or auntie, you can help mom while she's breastfeeding. That doesn't mean that, you know, okay, you won't be able to feed the baby a bottle, but there are other ways that you can support mom and baby. There are other ways that you can bond with baby. And this is a very frequent discussion I have because you know, a lot of times they'll be like, well, you know, he feels left out because he doesn't feed the baby or he feels left out because, you know, the baby only wants me. So I think having that discussion with the family members on how you can support mom breastfeeding is so important um, about, you know, how to how to do that as a family. And so what are some of the physiological benefits that you tell, um, you know, mothers and their partners about from breastfeeding? Yeah. So the big part, the big, the really big one is um, the link to heart disease and hypertension. And there are certain women um, based on their race and culture that they have higher risks of um, high blood pressure. So that's very important with um, most of my moms, but especially some subsets of the moms, because it can actually um, help heart health and um, decreased blood pressure. There is, um, you know, studies show that, you know, it can uh, help with weight loss, but also with other forms, you know, helping with obesity and things like that, um, both in mom and baby. And the big one is cancer. Um, it, it decreases, like we, we've seen a cumulative effect. So like if, you know, for me, I breastfed three years. So my one child was less than one year. My other child was over one year. So you know, it doesn't matter, you know, each child, but a cumulative effect. So like if you had two or three or four pregnancies and how that decreases the risk of both um, breast and uterine cancer. So I think sometimes that's really important to talk about. Because yeah, no one talks about it. No one talks no about one it. No one talks about yeah. it. Yeah, and I think showing the, the, the partner or the spouse, like how important this is and why this is so important to mom. And hey, by the way, 
this is going to decrease the risk of, you know, when I say cancer, that's a big word. <laughs> yeah, you know? for sure. And, yeah. you know, and that really may mobilize like, wow, this is really important for me to like, you know, help mom. Like, okay, so when she's nursing, you know, what do we, what do we, what is the number one thing that moms do or forget to do when we're nursing around the clock? We forget to feed ourselves. Yeah, which is like one of the most important things for milk production, ironically. Yeah, we don't feed ourselves. We don't drink. So like I'll talk to the father and I'm like, I want you to go buy the go to the store, buy one of those big water bottles. And I said, I want you to always have it filled for your mom. And then I tell mom or whoever's in the room, I said, when you feed the baby, I want you to feed yourself. So whether that's having like a basket full of protein bars, you know, you're not, you know, not going to be able to have time to make a meal. So maybe that's when you know, grandma, you know, I think the grandmothers and the aunties are probably a little more cognizant of this because they themselves are mothers, um, whether they breastfed or not. But I remember it was, you know, especially in our culture, Indian culture, I was being told to eat certain foods or, you know, do certain things to increase milk production. You know, some of them are, you know, some of them were spot on and some of them, of course, were wives tales that are spread, you know, down through the generations. But I feel like a lot of times, um, depending on your support system, you know, a lot of times the, the, the females will, you know, maybe a bigger source of support. So I think it's also teaching, you know, the men in our, in our lives or, or in our relationships, like how they can support us. Because again, like you said, it could be, it's, it's a catastrophic change to the relationship. And I think that how, um, how to position men and how to have them feel like, so they're not, they don't feel like they're out of the, um, you know, out of this, it's not just the two of them, it's the three of us. And how, yeah, and, how and how that works. And, you know, and I think honestly, you have to talk about like the sexuality of the breast, you know, because it's, you know, it's now it's, you know, it's the breasts are there to feed a child, but, you know, it's also the sexuality of the breasts and, you know, it may be different in different relationships and different cultures. Yes, it's, it's pretty, it's, you know, it's pretty fascinating. And, and that's why I, you know, I became a lactation consultant is because of my struggles with my children because I could have, I guess I could have gone the other way and said, ah, oh, you know, big deal for me. It's all the same. doesn't matter. And I, you know, for me, I chose to go the other way. So moms wouldn't struggle like I did. And, and, you know, it's, it's worked out well because I, I have the opportunity to do that. I do separate breastfeeding clinics. And, um, and what I've what I have seen is that, you know, difficulty breastfeeding and postpartum depression and anxiety often go hand in hand. And, yeah. um, you know, a lot of times, like in my breastfeeding clinic, you know, I've, you know, I've fixed the latch and the baby's feeding and that's maybe taken 10 minutes. And, you know, the, the rain, the remainder 30, 40 minutes is, you know, mom crying and I'm holding yeah. her hand and really kind of talking about like, it's okay. And I think since I'm on the other side of, <laughs> you know, you're always postpartum, like I'm 18 mm. years postpartum, but you're always postpartum. It doesn't change. Um, really kind of talking about it. In, in, in terms that we are all doing the best that we can and it doesn't matter, you know, if the baby gets a bottle of formula, it doesn't matter what sippy cup you use, it doesn't matter what mommy and me class you go to, and in my case it doesn't matter how many AP classes and what college my kids go to it's really just doing the best we can as mothers doing the best we can as parents and just filling our ch children with love and that they're going to be okay and I think sometimes the, when we're in those early stages, we, we need to hear about that because like you said, depending on how we're comparing ourselves to everyone else, whether it's in person or social media, we feel like we're not doing enough. And unfortunately, yeah, I think absolutely. that continues. So, you know. For sure. And I think, as you say, it's like, 
you know, filling our children with love, but then also filling ourselves and supporting ourselves with love as well, which often gets forgotten because, you know, ironically and unfortunately, often as the more anxious we are, this, this can transmit to our child. And so one of the things we can do for our children is to actually support ourselves to kind of put ourselves into a better position to give them what they really need, which is, you know, love and nourishment and, and support. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One hundred percent. And you mentioned that you've mentioned a few times about, you know, the issue with the latch. Would you say that's the most common issue you come across when women are having trouble with breastfeeding? Oh, yeah, I think I, I would say 99% of the time, because, you know, what if you have a poor latch, you know, the baby isn't, you know, getting on properly, or maybe getting on and not extracting enough milk. So that can affect your milk production. And also, that's the one that's the number one reason women quit, right? Because it hurts. It's painful. Yeah. Uh, my nipples are bleeding so and um you know a lot of times there there may be other explanations offered you know oh this you know this thing in the lip or this thing in the tongue and you know what we have found and you know both in research and what you know I do this every day is really just you know babies have been doing this for centuries and centuries I think some of sometimes we need to kind of back off a little bit and let the babies do what they want they know how to do and, you know, a lot of times I just, you know, a little tweak here, a little tweak there, you know, how to position the baby, you know, how for, you know, of course, you know, there are some women, um, myself included, anatomy is a little bit different. So you may need, you know, a little, little support, or I may need to, you know, have you try something else, you know, for the next few weeks, and then, then we'll revisit, you know, um, if that's changed anything. But, you know, nine times out of 10, it's really just, just kind of, I think, again, we're so focused on um, are we doing things correctly? And, it, and it's interesting to me, like when I go back to India or like, you know, family from India comes here, it's like, how natural is it um, that they put the baby on? And, 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 I, and, I, and I, what I always say, I said, yeah, it's natural, but it's not always easy. And just, you know, it's, yeah. it's never, it, you can't assume for every mother, it's going to be just like, I pop the baby on the breast and it's going to, you know, I look like Lady Madonna. That's, you know, that's, that definitely was not me. Um, no me, <laughs> but I think, but I think just in, again, empowering, like that word keeps coming up that empowering mom, that she can do it because it's that lack of self-efficacy and that lack of self-confidence. And then that's what translates into, I'm not doing this right. Or, you know, let me give a bottle, you know, I don't have enough milk and that whole, like you said, that vortex is just, you know, it feeds off of each other. Yeah, no, that makes so much sense. Well, talking to Natasha, I feel like we can talk to you for like five hours, <laughs> but I'm conscious of your time. And I just wanted to say thank you so much for some of the gems of wisdom and for raising issues that I just think are so not in the sphere and not uh, uh, people are not aware enough of them as they should be. And I think that what you're doing is phenomenal. So what we'll do is We'll put all the links to your page and your resources up on the show notes and also on the article linked to this podcast. Um, and everyone should come and check out what you're doing. And I think what you're doing is wonderful. And um, thank you so much. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. It was so, such a wonderful conversation. Brilliant. Well, thanks again. And um, we'll put uh, Dr. Natasha's links up. And um, any questions that you have for her, you can send over to us and we will send them along. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye. Bye.